Well, if you haven't done so already, uh, take your Bibles now and turn with me to Psalm 8. You can find this in the Chair Bible, page 450, Psalm 8. And before we read the Word of God, let us once again ask Him to grant us understanding. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that You would minister to our hearts through Your Word. We pray that You would remind us again that Your Word is truth and You would sanctify us by it. Speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll hear now God's Word, Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars, which You have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Well, thus far, the Word of the Lord, and may He bless it to us this evening. Well, thus far in the Psalms, we have been in a warfare context as we started this series. Psalms 3-7 to have been filled with hostile enemies, liars and false accusers who were pursuing David's life to overtake him and slaughter him. It's really been, in many ways, a depressing start. And it picks up decades of trouble in David's life. Trouble with Saul, trouble with Absalom. It's shown us David in anxious darkness. David yearning for relief. David filling his bed with tears and feeling as though lions were after him. And while these psalms have had triumphant statements of hope and acknowledgments of the God who hears prayer, they have been yet loaded with lamentation. But Psalm 8, though still speaking of the enduring conflict arising from the wicked, Psalm 8 is truly a of a different order. It is a hymn that begins and ends with a declaration of praise to the majestic name of Yahweh our Lord. And this psalm invites us to see God's glory in creation. God's glory in using the unexpected things of the world to advance His name. And God's glory in caring for man and crowning man as king among all His creatures. Now, in view of the fall of Adam, only the New Testament can explain how this crowning position for man comes about. Because Adam forfeited the fullness of His blessed place. But Psalm 8 hints of an enduring and exalted place for man 
And several New Testament texts will elaborate quoting this psalm directly. But what is clear from both the beginning and the end of the psalm is that the Lord's glory and grace should be celebrated by the godly. That we should give thoughtful consideration to who our God is and what He has done for us as people. And that's really the import of the opening and closing refrain. I'm, I'm going to have four points. This is kind of a freebie. But you have to deal with the opening and closing refrain. O Lord, all caps, O Yahweh, our Lord, capital L, lowercase, that's Adonai. O Yahweh, our covenant God, who is Adonai, the master of the universe, the prevailing sovereign, the king over all, you are ours. You have permitted us to come into relationship with you. And that is a staggering truth because your name, everything that you are and all that you do is majestic. Now, majesty is a word we know often describing the splendor of a king. It's used in the Bible to describe the, describe the stately cedars of Lebanon, which were the best trees of the forest. So it's used to describe the power of the war horse who will charge into battle in majesty and won't back down. But with respect to God Himself, it describes the magnificence on display in what God has made. His majesty is seen in the sun's brilliant light in the multitude of stars and their celestial shapes, in the crashing of the ocean waves that come only so far as God is commanded, and then in the master craftsman work of a potter, making man in his own image. Brethren, everywhere we look, from the burning balls of fire in the heavens down to the intricate designs and skeletal features on the smallest bugs, everything says glory. Everything says God is powerful, wise, brilliant, good, attentive, orderly, faithful, and so forth. So this psalm is calling on God's people to corporate worship, and it says to us, see the privilege that's been given to us. Yahweh, the ruler of the universe, is our God, and His glory fills the earth. Now look at the comfort we have in knowing that we rest in the care of the omnipotent King. We're safe with Him. We're assured that nothing can prevail over His great power. So give Him your worship. Magnify Him due to the majesty of His character and ways. And then the psalm starts explaining the ways in which God's majesty is seen. And we're considering four of those tonight. First, see with me, majesty and weakness. Majesty and weakness in verses 1 and 2. Now, the majesty of Yahweh, our sovereign king, could be spelled out in several ways. But the way David chooses to focus our attention on it is he lifts our eyes to the heavens. Verse 1b, you have set your glory above the heavens. In other words, one glance up at the sky's brilliance, the painted sunset, the stars twinkling in their vast array, these things confront us with glory. And while a night in the wilderness of Judah in, say, a thousand BC with no light pollution would be a staggering sight, don't we see this glory even more than David? Brethren, each one of us can go and we can look at the images captured by the Hubble Space Telescope. 
And we can be dazzled by rings and company distant stars or far-off galaxies displayed in clusters by the great spot on Jupiter and so forth. And the images are breathtaking. And we can look at those pictures and be immediately reminded of our smallness. Just a few days ago, there were news reports from NASA of glimpses of a sunspot. Some of you may have seen it in the news. On the imaging, that spot looked like just that, a spot. But the truth was the flare, which could be seen with the naked eye, if you were wearing the proper sunglasses. If you looked at the sun, you could actually see this thing, a hint of the size. That spot was four times the size of the earth. And now we can see through technology a spot on the sun dwarfing the earth that that's just like a drop in a bucket as we look at the vast array of God's decorated heavens. The sizable sun, the moon in its brilliance shining, billions and billions of stars. These are just created things. And what does their largeness and expanse over the heavens which they are spread out, what do they say about God Himself? If these celestial bodies are stunning and massive, it says God, our God, is even greater. In Scripture, texts that David knows have already indicated this. I've always loved in Genesis 1, Moses' shot at the pagans who bow to the stars. You have to remember, Genesis, Exodus, they're, they're polemics, they're attacks on false views of God. But Genesis 1, as it's spelling out to us, God making all things on day 4 highlights the making of the greater light and the lesser light, the sun and the moon. And then in like a toss-off comment, the pagans are bowing down to the stars to worship them and we read, and the stars. God made the stars. The creation of the stars by the word of His power is recorded in two Hebrew words. And we're amazed by them. But the Scripture will go on in texts like Job 38 to tell us of God's might as He asked Job, can you bind the Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion's belt? Or Isaiah 40, Behold the Lord who calls out the starry host night by night. He knows each star by name. And because of the greatness of His might, not one is missing. See the majesty. Every day, Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The voice of God's glory is sung by the created things in the sky to confront us with the majesty of God. See His eternal power and divine nature, which are inescapable. But the question for the believer is this. Do we stand in awe of this? Do we look around at God's world? Do we look up at the celestial features that we cannot explain that dwarf us and praise the Lord for His majesty and power? But brethren, then note the irony. God hasn't only demonstrated His strength by setting His glory in the heavens. He has another means, a surprising one, for showing that strength. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes, babies and infants, you have established strength. 
Now, no one looks at newborns and nursing children and thinks, wow, these creatures are strong. In fact, what strikes us about babies is their weakness. Can't do anything for themselves. They can't control their bodies. They can't lift up their own heads. They can't give direction to the movement of their limbs. Babies are a striking display of human frailty. But look at what David says. In them, out of their inarticulate sounds, or as they grow, their sounds spoken or sung without great understanding, the Lord our Lord has established strength. And then note the reason. Because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, three words are used for hostile men here. Foes, enemy, and avenger. And with those collection of words, we can imagine an array of muscle-popping brutes with skill to control their bodies so as to fire arrows with precision, to sling a stone at a hair and not miss, as is said of some Benjaminites in the Scripture, to wield the blade in ways that make you want to run away. And look at the contrast between the gathered group of foes with their skillfully controlled weapons and babies who can't even support their own frame. And yet David says, the Lord overwhelms the strong with the weak. Immediately we have to wonder, how? How can God establish strength with infants over enemies? Well, notice that David says that the strength Yahweh establishes out of the babies is coming from their mouths. Now, I don't think he means listen to the set of lungs on that screaming child. The idea is out of the mouths of babes come words or sometimes things we don't understand that are praises to the majestic God. Now, we have to think of how Jesus quoted this psalm on Palm Sunday. Remember, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem riding a donkey. He's coming into the city. Multitudes are praising Him, which infuriates the hostile religious leaders. But then for the enemies of Christ, things get worse. Jesus enters the temple. He overturns tables of the money changers. He throws down the gauntlet. And again, it increases the burning rage of these religious leaders and things get even worse for them. Jesus starts healing people in the temple and at the works of His power, children in the temple start crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David! The chief priests and scribes for them, that was it. They had to stand against this, what they regarded to be blasphemy. What it really was, was a threat to their power. Divine majesty on the scale of the creation of the heavens was being revealed in their midst. It was shouting glory. But these men wouldn't praise. But the children do. And the foes say to Jesus, Matthew 21.16, Do you hear what these are saying? The obvious answer is yes. And the implied import is, you need to stop them, Jesus. But He doesn't. Instead, He quotes this psalm. Have you never read that's a sarcastic question, by the way. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes, of infants and nursing babies, you, the Father, has prepared praise? You see, Jesus understands the concept of establishing strength by praise. Brethren, it's praise, not physical specimens who can wield a sword 
It is praise that overcomes the adversaries. Praise. Praise from the weak thwarts the powerful. That's true in a spiritual way that we can't even grasp right now as Ephesians 3 tells us that the angels are learning as we're worshiping. I don't even know how to begin to explain what that's saying. But that the demons are driven back in all of their might as we offer our praise. Consider the concept in worship right now. Our unconquerable God is exalting Himself in strength through the folly of what we're doing here tonight. Coming to hear the Word and coming to sing. And this praise, which will never cease, which will never be snuffed out because the people of God will not be crushed, no foe can silence the praises of the people of God. So while God's majesty is shining in the heavens, it's also bellowing forth from us as we teach our babbling little ones to sing the songs of Zion. The devil delights in apparent unbeatable power. Brutes like Goliath. Our God delights in humbling the strong with the weak. Goliath's death by a young lad only with stones. Or better, victory through a cross. Weakness is the way, as J.I. Packer put it in the book. Second, we see immensity and particular care. Verses 3 and 4. Now David now considers another reason why the Lord should be adored. Look at all God has made. The work of your fingers. He considers the moon and the stars which the Lord has set in place. And David is overwhelmed with the immensity of God's created order. And it leads him to a natural question. In view, Lord, of all that you have made, things that are big and numerous. Verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? In other words, because of the sheer magnitude of the things in heaven, and reasonable estimates, by the way, would tell us that David could probably see something like 4,000 stars as he looked up at the sky. So if God is attending to all of these stars in their great number, how could he be mindful of small, inconsequential man? Of course, you know the Bible will go on to describe the immensity of God, Isaiah 40 in particular, and say that the Lord marked off the heavens with a span. It's a figurative image, but what it's saying is from the pinky to the thumb, God has set things in the heavens, which shows its smallness and His greatness. And Yahweh sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before Him. It's just another way to say that we're small, minute, seemingly inconsequential. Other than a fleeting moment, who pays attention to grasshoppers? But David confesses a staggering truth. The Lord is mindful of man. And the idea of the Lord being mindful of man has a thoughtful or purposeful ring to it. And then David further asks, what is the Son of Man that you care for Him? It's not simply amidst the immensity of God's created order that He thinks about man, that He thinks about individual man, I should say, but He actually cares for man. He takes action to benefit man. He expresses compassion. As David puts it in Psalm 103, the Lord 
knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. He considers our weakness. He attends to our needs. He provides for us. And He gives this provision and care to mankind generally. Look at what He's given in creation itself. The light of the sun coupled with rain for the growth of crops. He's made food tasty. He's made things beautiful. He's given the gifts of marriage, children, of good wine, of sport. He's given laughter and dancing and feasting and whatever health we have. Every good and perfect gift is from Him. But as a believer, isn't there more here to consider about that mindfulness, that care of man? What has He done for us? He's given redemption. He's given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He's given His Son to save us. He's given the hope of glory. He's given peace in the present. He's given access to the throne. He's given power to us to endure to the end. And do you see, brethren, the Lord is attending to each and every one of us. He's given us countless covenant mercies to know Him, to hear from Him, to talk to Him, to experience pleasures that last. And David consider this, considers it and he stands amazed. Why does man matter to God? Why would God pay such careful attention to us or to me specifically? Why would he invest time and energy as we think of it, though God is outside of time and nothing's too hard for him? Why would the Lord focus on us? Now David isn't getting lost here in philosophical speculation about man's place in the universe. What he's thinking is, why has the Lord drawn me into His covenant? The why question is rhetorical. It's an expression of praise. Because David knows the ultimate answer to the question. For His own glory. To display His love. To show His majesty. Well, beloved, do we take the time in all of our trifling activity to stop and say in stunned praise, I am amazed and thankful, Lord, that You care for me. Brethren, are we captivated by our God who is faithful to us? As Paul would say in Galatians 2, looking at Christ, that my Savior gave Himself up for me. He loved me. Immensity, yes, but particular care. And then thirdly, David focuses on multiplicity and honor, verses 5-8. to eight. David's convinced that man matters to the Lord. That amidst all the created things, even those that appear most majestic, man has a special place and concern in God's heart, if I can put it that way. Now where in the world did David get this idea? It's not the prevailing thought of his culture. Most ancient peoples, dare I say all ancient peoples, save the Hebrews, believe that man was made as a slave to the gods. Man has no significance other than to provide for the gods. Now fast forward to our day and you get a similar perspective. The enlightened, so-called, Secular humanist rejects all talk of other gods or of God Himself, but He's replaced 
supernatural powers of some sort with an impersonal evolutionary force that regards man as an accident, as a meaningless step upon a progression to some superior being. The character Superman comes from Friedrich Nietzsche, Superuben, the advanced man through evolutionary process. That, that, that's not a, a good thought. Or maybe modern man doesn't get lost in the philosophical perspective of nihilism, no God, no meaning. Maybe he just adopts the pragmatism and subjective ethics of our time. What is man? Well, man is only important if I decide he's important. And this is really the wicked thought that moves many to do things like slaughter the unborn or kill the elderly whom they decide are not human or no longer contributing. If a baby, or in this mindset, let's call it a fetus so it's impersonal, if a fetus doesn't work with my life that's already working, I won't be mindful or care for it. Do you see, pagans, both ancient and modern, believe man is totally indispensable, man is unimportant, and in most cases, man is not worth thinking about. So where in the world does David get this idea of God Almighty caring for man? He got it from God. He read his Bible. The Lord revealed Himself in Scripture. That's where David gets it from. David is about to thoroughly allude to Genesis 1, 26-31, where amidst the multiplicity of God's creatures, birds, bugs, fish, land animals, and so on, amidst all of these wonders that God has made, God gives man a special place. Verse 5, Yet you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings. David, according to Hebrews 2, is referring to the angels here. We'll come back to this shortly. But David says, man alone is crowned with glory and honor. Now the very idea of being crowned carries kingly overtones, does it not? Man is created to be a king. Man is royal. Man, mankind, is given an inherent nobility among everything that God has made. There is not equality between man and all of these other creatures. Man is distinct. Well, what is the distinction among man or with man? It's being made in the image of God. And the kingly God has called these instruments to be His kings, His vice-regents in the world, both male and female. And that was further indicated when He told man and woman, that they together were to rule over the creatures. You see, David highlights this, that the Lord our Lord has given man dominion over the works of God's hands. You, O Lord our Lord, you've put all things under His feet. Think of Genesis 2 when the Lord God brings creatures to the man to see what He would call them. In this very act of naming, the man, Adam, images God. God is a God who is authoritative and gives things distinction and identity. And then man is created to imitate him, to exercise 
the authority he's been given over the creatures. He rules the livestock, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. Now, David is reflecting on all this post-fall. You remember, he lives in a world where man is still striving to exercise this dominion, but the animals are a threat. Remember, one of the arguments as to why David says, I can go and fight Goliath is because he killed lions and bears, taking away the sheep. David obviously knows things have changed since the perfect state of the garden. And David knows the cause of the change is sin. It's interesting in the previous psalm, Psalm 7, when David was elaborating on his frightening position, hunted by enemies, he describes those enemies as being like a lion who will tear his soul apart. And then David spells out the great problem in an exasperated cry, Psalm 7, verse 9, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. What's that telling us? David knows the problem is evil. Evil in evil men behaving like ravaging beasts. And all this imagery says that David gets the implications of the fall and the consequences of Adam's sin. However, though man's kingly role has been tainted as his labors are filled with toil, as the ground fights back, we might put it, that doesn't mean that man has forfeited everything about this distinctive role. The image, of man, the image of God in man is marred, but not lost. You can read about that more in Genesis 9 or James 3. The fact that man is royal, not by self-designation, we don't sing songs of how we're kings because we decided we're kings. We're kings by God's creative decree. And that moves David to praise. Brethren, we haven't evolved into a higher life form. We haven't made ourselves distinct amidst the animals because we've just grown more powerful. God made us what we are. God has given us a special position. And in that position, God's care of us is utterly unique. Brethren, doesn't Jesus highlight this? Again, in a fallen world, when He tells His disciples to consider the created order around them. When you're tempted to be anxious about the necessities of life, what, do you, what does Jesus say you're supposed to do? Look at the birds of the air, Matthew 6. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then the clincher, are you not of more value than they? Or Jesus asks as He sends His Apostles out as sheep amidst wolves, people attacking the gospel and attacking the servants of the gospel. The fear of God must rule you and not the fear of man. And then he offers a word of assurance. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Five birds for two pennies. That means basically these birds are worthless. But not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, Jesus says, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Four, you are valuable, more valuable than many sparrows, and you therefore should fear not. Brethren, do you see David is recognizing that man is valuable? Now that's true for man generally. Every man is an image bearer of God and he has an inherent dignity. And there are all kinds of implications that holds about how we then should treat fellow image bearers. 
But there's a particular truth here for us who call our covenant God our Lord. How do we see the honor we have in the immensity of all God's creatures, even the angels? Well, the crowning argument is, for whom did Christ come? Hebrews 2 specifically says it wasn't for the angels. There's no plan of salvation for the angels. He came for the children of Abraham. The Lord didn't come for birds or fish or beasts of the field, though they benefit in the redemption. The Father sent His Son to save a particular people. And we in Christ are made to be a royal priesthood. How does John describe it in the Revelation? Revelation 1.5. He offers a doxology. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us a kingdom priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, are we filled with praise because we're image bearers? Are we filled with praise because our covenant Lord cares for us? Are we filled with praise that we're made kings and that we, brethren, we will sit on the throne with Jesus Christ, Revelation 3. We will judge the angels. Do you comprehend that? I don't. But Paul says it's true, 1 Corinthians 6. Are you filled with praise that amidst all that God has made, you are more valuable to Him than anything else? And He's proven it by sending His own Son to save your guilty soul. This draws forth praise. Bless God for His majesty. But then finally see, humility and exaltation. Now, I have to really summarize here. I, I really could do a whole sermon on this, but I don't, I don't want to do that. Psalm, this psalm confronts us with a problem. Though David lives in a post-fall world and he understands that dominion has been unsettled, he still sees and recognizes that God has a gift to man of authority. Man is still subduing beasts, for instance. But, but there's one little word in verse 6 that tells us post-fall man does not enjoy the privileges of pre-fall man. When God made Adam and crowned him, David declares that Yahweh put all things under his feet. But now post-fall, it's patently obvious that all things are not under our feet. Indeed, man can be dominated by Birds or beasts or brutes among men or brutalized by the power of death itself. It's the depressing idea of Genesis 5 when God says, I've made man in my image, but then Adam had a son in his likeness or image. And the genealogy goes on to say, and he died, and he died, and he died. Man is now subjected to death. Paul will say, death reigns. We're under the power of sin and the wages of sin is death. All things are not under man's feet. David knows the disorder of the fallen world and yet he also knows the hope of a coming son in his own line who will reign forever. Second Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, there's one word that stands out in space. David, you will have a son who will be a forever king seated on a forever throne and I will establish his kingdom forever. 
that word had to get David's attention because he knows forever can only happen if enemies are overthrown, if physical suffering is removed, and if death itself dies. So David uses the language of Genesis 1 while speaking in a post-fall world and conveys the idea that the kingly position of man with all things under his feet is not lost forever. Now, David has shadowy glimpses of these things, but brethren, we have the glory of it seen in the second Adam, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the forever King of David's line, and that forever has been demonstrated in His victory over death. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the dead on the third day. He's exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And He, the God-man, bearing our flesh, yet fully God, is seated on that throne. Hebrews 2 tells us, after an extended quotation of Psalm 8, that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. He embraced the humiliation of becoming man, but He has been crowned with glory and honor. What is that talking about? His resurrection and ascension. His enthronement. Everything is put in subjection to Him. Hebrews 2.8, the Father has left nothing outside of Christ's control. However, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Christ. Isn't that the tension of our present situation? Jesus is already crowned. He already rules. But we don't yet see His total control. That doesn't make it any less true. It simply means the fullness of Christ's reign and of Jesus' restoration of all things isn't yet experienced. On the one hand, Ephesians 1, Jesus has been seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that can be named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And the Father has put all things under His feet. It's a direct quotation of Psalm 8. Christ is head over all things to the church. He governs all things. But Jesus hasn't yet made His reign clear to everyone. There's a day of mercy. Kiss the Son before He returns and brings your rebellion on your head. However, the day will come, 1 Corinthians 15, when the risen Christ comes back and every authority and power standing against Him will fall. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ will reign until He has put all things, all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is one of those all things. And brethren, death itself dies. The overthrow of its power in Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of a new order, of new life, and it will culminate in death forever being eliminated. So we will see the day when man returns to his rightful place, that is when the God-man exercises complete dominion that we can see, and we in Him shall reign on the earth with no threats whatsoever to us. Our royalty right now has been marred by sin, but it's being restored by Jesus Christ. And we already taste this because we have freedom from the fear of death. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but it has not yet appeared what we shall be. But beloved, we have the hope of the glory of God. 
doesn't that mean that we as believers have all the more reason to say, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Brethren, do you consider the privileges of being raised with Christ and reigning with Christ and all things under Your feet because You're in Christ? How can you not be moved by that? May the Lord cause us tonight, beloved, to be captivated by the majesty He has demonstrated in creation itself in the heavens, but in the making of man and His plan for our redemption. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we stand back in awe of this text. It's no wonder this text, this great quotation, this refrain has captivated the hearts of so many of Your people. Lord, we pray that we would learn to praise You like this. We pray that we would shout for Your glory. And we pray even that that shout of praise would be demonstrated as we come to sing to You. Oh Lord, show us afresh our special dignity as image bearers of God, but even more so, how You sent the Son of Your love to ransom us. May we overflow with appreciation. May You give us a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, dear friends, you'll find...